Welcome to Spiro Avenue. And now your host, Justin Spiro. Ah, yes, welcome to Spiro Avenue. And today is a very special day. It's our first episode with our brand new producer, Jag. Jag the DJ, a Boston native, but we will forgive him, a current Detroiter. <laughs> Jag, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, Boston by birth, Detroiter by choice. So, so. You, you've had it a lot better than us recently. Jag with Boston. Boston wins a title pretty much every time you roll out of bed in the morning these days. <laughs> uh, I, I, it's a, a much better shape than really Detroit is at this point, despite your Patriots loss last night. But Yeah, thanks I, for the reminder on that. Yeah, yeah, and I, I hate you forever for 2013, what David Ortiz did to my Tigers, and we will be getting to that. Um, just a second, but you have certainly lived a charmed life, so I'm jealous of you, and I'm just going to get that out right at the beginning. You are a, what, 15-year veteran of the radio industry? Yeah, uh, most recently here in Detroit, uh, worked a year and a half for uh, Channel 955, and then went to New Orleans for three years to run a radio station down there, great name of a station, Voodoo 104. Very nice. And then uh, came back here and most recently worked for a year here at uh, 98.7 Amp Radio. So I've got to tell you, even though I am a Boston native and I have some loyalties there, I do love the Detroit teams, and I am in Detroit by choice because... I love this area. I love the people of this area and the fact that it's America's great comeback city. So I'm thrilled to be here with you. Well, and I'm mostly happy to have you because I saw your resume and <laughs> in the history of overqualified applications. <laughs> I appreciate that. I, I think you're, you're right up there. So we're happy to have you. Again, Spiro Avenue, this is episode 11. Uh, we have come a long way in just a few months, and we are going to continue to develop the show, and I'm excited Today I want to talk really about just it's a crazy time to be a Detroit sports fan. And it really is. It's something I've talked about repeatedly on Ryan Schuling's show, who will be on here in a minute. It is the low point in town as a Detroit sports fan. There's really not a whole lot of hope for anybody. If you look at the Lions, maybe 8-8, eight and 9-7, eight, and seven, and that's the cream of the crop. The Red Wings are a mess. I think the Pistons are going nowhere fast. Red Wings they're going make, downtown. They're, oh, they're going downtown. That's the only place they're going. It, it, it's a bad time to be a Detroit sports fan. And really, it, it got me thinking, this whole concept of the good old days are so wonderful. And I've always felt the good old days really are overrated. And you look at it, there's numerous examples of this. People always romanticize the early 1950s, for example. You know, they say it's a simpler time. People left their doors unlocked. You could just go anywhere and it was safe. You could walk downtown Detroit in any alley and nothing bad would happen to you. But those people always neglect to tell you about that whole duck and cover thing that was going on in the, in the schools where they were so terrified on a daily basis of a nuclear attack that kids would hide under their little wooden desks like that was going to do anything in the event of nuclear war. It was a time of paranoia. Uh, a time of jaded uh, behavior really throughout the entire country. The 1950s were not so great. And, I again, there's numerous examples. I remember years ago I was watching the movie Titanic with my grandma. I was rather young. <laughs> great movie, by the way. I don't care what anyone Never says. Never seen yeah. it. Oh, you're, you're missing out. But I was watching this movie with my grandma, and she's saying, you just look at these gentlemen. Look at, how, look at how men treated women back then. It was so much better back then. Women just, uh, men knew how to really treat a lady back then. She was just, you know, she's watching all the scenes. They're in first class, and they're having their, their nice, you know, lamb chop. And I said, you know, Grandma, you couldn't even vote if you were around in 1912. The women's suffrage movement came around in the United States eight years later. So, sure, I mean, the, I'm sure men held the door more often in 1912, but the good old days, as always, tend to be a little bit overrated. The famous uh, World War II picture of the sailor coming, coming and kissing the girl that they had the statue over here in Royal Oak. 
that was not a consensual kiss. I know. He just was... grabbed her and, you know, today he'd be in jail for that. That's a sexual assault. It is. It's like the, the Billy Madison. That's assault, brother. I mean, you can't do that. I mean, that, But people, we like to romanticize these things. Frankly, I'm guilty of it, too. I mean, I, I look back at my high school days and I catch myself doing this. And maybe some of you do it, too, but... I sit back and I say, you know, high school was just great. I, those were the good old days. Like, I just want to go back to high school. And, and you really, like, the good old days, the days of what? The days of an early curfew? The days of trying to find a non-embarrassing date to the homecoming dance? The days of not getting asked to the Sadie Hawkins dance at all? I mean, truth be told, at least for me, high school kind of sucked. Yeah, me too. But Right? But we, we look at these things and we say, the good old days. And, that, and that's sort of the trap. And I've caught myself doing that repeatedly, and I think I'm seeing it a lot with the Detroit Tigers fan base now. And there, there's not not everybody, but there's a large faction of this fan base. And I'll give you an example. I'm watching two days ago on Wednesday, earlier this week for those listening later, I'm watching the absolute beatdown of the Detroit Tigers, 13-2 to at the hands of the Kansas City Royals. It's just a disaster. Sometime in the 6th or 7th inning, my friend sends me a text saying, quote, I already miss the good old days of Tigers baseball. But I asked him, and I'll ask you, what are you missing exactly? Are you missing getting embarrassed as prohibitive favorites in not one but two World Series? Are you missing Nelson Cruz bludgeoning us to death in 2011 in the ALCS? Are you missing David Ortiz ripping our hearts out with a Grand Slam in 2013? Or maybe you're missing 2014 with a Tigers rotation that had four Cy Young Award winners in it, three current, one future, and lost in an embarrassing sweep to the Baltimore Orioles who were throwing out Bud Norris and Chris Tillman. I mean, this has been an absolute treacherous era for Detroit Tigers fans. And, and there's already this, this longing for the past decade of Tigers baseball, people, understandably, they miss Verlander. I get it. They miss J.D. Martinez. I get it. I get having a sentimental attachment to the player. But it seems like people are having a sentimental attachment to the era already. It's already coming in. And I think this era, frankly, is highly overrated, as the good old days often are. I mean, the transition into a rebuild was necessary. They needed to do it. I, I'm not against the teardown. I think it had to happen. I think it was the right thing to do. And I think they got a good return for most of the players they flipped. So I'm not, I'm not arguing that. But the way this is framed, the way we are looking at this era in hindsight, there are some people that are more like me. They view it not as a total failure. It's not like they finished dead last every year. But they came up short, and they did ultimately fail in achieving the ultimate goal. This is not a salary cap sport. They had incredible inherent advantages over the rest of baseball, certainly over the rest of their division, far more money in payroll over anyone in the AL Comedy Central, <laughs> and they never got the job done. I mean, I'm sorry, you, you have to grade them on a curve to you know, accommodate the fact that they had advantages over most of the teams in baseball, all but like two teams. They, they had an advantage going in every single year. Justin, let me ask you this, though. You talk about the good old days, it's the age-old question. What would you rather have? Would you rather be 2017 and having to trade Verlander, or would you rather be 2013 making it to the ALCS, 2012 in the World Series? Would you rather know that you don't have a future in your rebuilding, or would you rather be playing in October with a chance? To me, that's a better day than it is today. See, and that's sort of the, the pratfall. That's where people end up. And I, I get your point, and people say, oh, would you rather be 2003 and losing 119 games? 
No, but it would be easier on my heart and on my stress <laughs> level. So it, it, I, I get what you're saying, and it, it, it's a it's a valid point. So ultimately, yeah, I would rather have my heart torn out. But what I would rather have more than either of those two options is to actually get the job done, and that's what they didn't do. So I, I'm just analyzing this as honestly as I possibly can, and I do think that there is enough already. The season's not even over. The, the body is not even in the ground yet for this franchise, figuratively speaking. And people are already having this nostalgic, uh, oh, high school was so great mentality with this thing. And it's like, ah, no, high school wasn't that great. I mean, for, for a select few it was, but for most people it was kind of a kind of a tough time. I it mean, was it, for Al Bundy. He scored four touchdowns in one game for Polk High School. See, there you go. But I, we're not Al Bundy. No, we're not. We're, we are not Al Bundy. Some people have it better than you and I. But I, I just think there is a, an over – uh, over attachment to this era already and I am frankly I've had enough of this era I was ready for it to end and I would not have wanted it to last one day longer than it did I was ready to be put out of my misery I had had enough and you know people can disagree on whether or not to embrace this era or not I I have a hard time embracing it you have the individual moments Maglia Ordonia is sending us you know to the World Series it was great I mean I, not disputing that you have individual moments that you'll cherish you know, maybe you'll look finally on the time that we won one World Series game in two tries and we had to cheat to win because Kenny Rogers had a bunch of gunk on his hands. <laughs> I, I, that's the thing. This team went one and eight in two World Series, both times as prohibitive favorites. Both times as prohibitive favorites. One and eight, and they had to cheat. They had to cheat to win the one game they did. They, they got caught red-handed or mud-handed in this case. I mean, it, <laughs> it, it just it, – it is – an era, I'm done with it. I'm ready to be done with it. And I don't want to hear from my friends, God love them. I don't want to hear from anybody about how wonderful it was and how they missed this team. And I don't. I'm ready to be done. I, I get where you're coming from, but I just I, I disagree with you. I say bring on the rebuild. And really, you look at, back to that high school example. The pretty girl in school could never break your heart if she didn't even look at you. If she never, <laughs> if she never just gave you the time of day. She could never break your heart. But if she flashes you a smile in the hallway or, God forbid, winks at you in the cafeteria, I mean, that's where your heartaches begin, as Elvis Presley would say. I mean, that's, that's what the Tigers did this entire era. The Tigers did a lot of smiling and a lot of winking at this fan base. And really, now, I don't think they're going to give us the time of day, and it makes us that much better, and it makes it, frankly, that much easier to ignore them right back. And that's where we are with this team. So... It's a disappointing era. I'm not happy with it. Look, you're a Boston Red Sox fan, Jag, so you can sit back in all your glory and tell me that I'm nuts. But, but, you, but again, you talk about all this glory. you got to remember, and, and I'm a few years older than you, but pre-2004, when they broke the curse, you've got 2003 and Aaron Boone ripping our hearts out of the walk-off in the uh, Game 7 extra innings of the ALCS. You know, when the curse was for an 85th straight year. And Red Sox fans 15 years ago, we knew this dilemma. Would you rather be in last place or would you rather come oh so close and have the ball go through Buckner's legs or Aaron Boone hit the walk off or, you know, 1946, 1975, 1967, you name it. I did a term paper on this in high school. <laughs> it's, it, it, it's, it's an age old question. Would you rather have a shot and be crushed or would you rather just be miserable and accept it the whole way through? And again, I, I address that as best as I can. I do get the point. I also think it's just better for my mental health if they just stink. It, it maybe not, maybe not indefinitely. It's not like I want them to stink forever. But I've had enough of the the close calls. I need a couple years off. I need a break. 
I, I can't stand being disappointed with this team anymore. I, I'm at my wit's end. You th- I, I'm not going to argue that the Red Sox fans were not tortured for years. I will say the 2003 example, while crushing, you had to live with that for like 11 months before that was redeemed or 12 months. I mean, you know. Yeah, but at the time, it was the culmination of everything up until then because there was a whole generation that didn't remember Buckner. I was five when Buckner happened in 1986. And then it was a whole new generation getting to see the, the, the tumult of being a Red Sox fan pre-2004. Yeah, and I, I all good points, but none of these are making me feel any better. <laughs> it, it, it's not your fault. I don't think there's a there's no cognitive behavioral therapy that can make me feel better about this era. It's been Sports a bad psychologist. Yeah, uh, I need I need one. I need the one from the natural. That aside, now we are going to welcome in Ryan Schuing. Ryan Schuing is the host of the Schuing Report in Lansing on the Team ninety two one FM. So now we welcome in Ryan Schuing. And it's a return of the favor. You give us great stuff on Mondays, and I do appreciate it. And I appreciate you having me on your show. It is one of the best shows you can get, certainly in this state. I enjoy it often and one of the better podcast listens to uh, for me after the fact. So let's jump into the Tigers here. I, frankly, I the opening segment, I covered this in great detail. I'm ready to be done with the Tigers era. I thought it was a grand disappointment. There's this sort of melancholy in this fan base. People are so sad that this era is over. I'm kind of relieved. Obviously, it's upsetting they never got it done. But frankly, I welcome the Tigers' plunge into irrelevancy, mostly because I can't take it anymore. My stress level has been too high for over a decade. I can't take any more disappointment. I need the break. Where do you stand? I think it's a valid point. I think they took us to the brink, you know, the mountaintop, if you will, but never quite uh, conquered the mountain. And in its recent incarnation, the Tigers franchise is moribund. It's, it's more of a zombie existence. And I would compare it, albeit not as serious, to having a loved one who's on life support, but you know they're brain dead and they're gone, and you've got to make a decision to pull the plug. And I think, you know, to a degree, you and I are pleased that at least the decision has been made to launch full bore into the sale mode. They got rid of Verlander, as painful as that was. They sold on Upton, which I was surprised that they were able and willing to do. And I think the next dominoes to fall are going to be Iglesias and Kinsler. And in my opinion, kind of shared with yours, is why stop here? Why hold on to the past? If you can get value for Iglesias, you do it. You move in a new direction. You re-up the option on Kinsler, and then you trade him as soon as you can get value, whether that's in December at the winter meeting, whether that's in spring training, or whether that's by next year's trade deadline. Let's say it even takes that long. You're still only half of the commitment in $5 million to a $10 million option than you would have been anyway by just paying them $5 million to walk away. So anybody that says they should just, you know, uh, buy Kinsler out, that's foolhardy. But to your broader point, am I relieved it's over? I have mixed emotions. I'm sad. It's bittersweet. They got so close, and you thought they would get one, and they didn't. And they're not going to for probably a very long time. Well, let's say Mike Illich were still alive. He were still functioning at a high level. He was still running the team as he had been for so many years. I mean, do you think the situation would still call for a rebuild? Is it just, in your opinion, Chris Illich saying this has to be slash and burned? Or do you think this would be the right thing, even if they were willing to maintain a large payroll, but it's just going in a direction where the guys are getting older and effective? I would argue they should have done the rebuild with or without uh, an edict slash payroll. Where do you stand on that? I agree, and I think that the, the difference in the factor between Chris and Mike is 
Chris is tearing it down because he wants to relieve himself of that payroll obligation, perhaps with an eye on selling it, though I'm not convinced on that yet, where I think Mike Illich would be different and where fans, I think, would take heart and be happier about it is, sure, Mike might sign off on a rebuild on the short-term fly, but then they would turn right around in this next free agency period and try to redistribute that money and maybe spend it more wisely. I'm not saying that they would go full-on into buy mode and big-name free agents and long-term contracts, but I think there would have been maybe a little bit more of a smooth transition where this is such a shock to the system. I mean, you're watching Verlander in an Astros uniform. You've got a great return on the package that you got in the trade for him, but it's going to take time. And Tigers fans just aren't used to this. I mean, many of us, most of us, are old enough to remember when they stunk 2005 and before, but it's been a long, good run here. Not a great run. It's been a very good run, and they just came up a little bit short. So I still think you're right that the the move to sell their current assets would have been the right decision, whether it was Chris or Mike. It just might have been handled a little differently. I agree. I I think you're spot on. I I think this – had to happen regardless you're just wasting money and spinning your wheels otherwise this group is not going to win anything I thought they really delayed this whole thing by one at least one season too many I mean I I don't I thought this team had no chance from the beginning of this season some people were not so sure but uh, frankly I'm happy it's over just you talked about this era you said good not great I don't like doing the buzzwords, you know, elite quarterback for the NFL, things like that. But I, I got to do it for this one time with you, Ryan. Was this era a failure or not? Ultimately, yes. I think if the standard is winning it all, winning a championship, winning one championship, then it is a failure. I think it does rank with some of the, the runs of very good that we've seen through the years, whether it be – uh, the Buffalo Bills in football in the 90s. The Atlanta Braves did get one, though. In the 90s, had they not, they might have been the epic story along these lines. The Indians were very good back then, didn't get a World Series done. But if you look at it, Justin, I think it's, it's fair to mention, going back to when the White Sox won it all over the Astros and the decade-plus since, any team that's had a run similar to the Tigers has gotten one, whether that's the Giants or the Phillies. Yankees, the Red Sox, you go on down the list, the Cardinals, the Cubs, and then maybe with the exception of the Texas Rangers, the Tigers have enjoyed more sustained success in that time, 12 years now, without a World Series title than any other team. And it's the ultimate frustration, I think. There is no fan base who had it better and yet never was able to enjoy a championship. And you mentioned Texas. I mean, at least Texas was like a strike away from winning one. They didn't go to the World Series and embarrass themselves. I mean, the Detroit Tigers were an embarrassment to themselves, the American League, in both 2006 and 2012, not just in that they lost, but in the way that they lost. You have a cheating scandal in 2006. You have pitchers falling down and throwing the ball over the place into the third row. You have the center fielder falling down. I mean, it's not just that they lost. It was such an embarrassing display in both seasons both times as heavy favorites it's just been such a bad era and even the Texas Rangers who I do think are a good example of a, a similarly tortured fan base haven't been you know relevant for 11 years I mean they had like a four or five year run the Tigers have had either a good team or a top payroll every year for the last you know tw- what 12 years now 11 12 years so I, I think no one's got it worse than us to borrow a a modified phrase from Jim Harbaugh and and moving on to this Little Caesars Arena which I am the biggest champion of 
probably in the city. Nobody's more excited for Little Caesars Arena than I am. I'm the biggest fan of it. Tax dollars be damned. Maybe that makes me a bad person, whatever. But the bottom line is these two teams inhabiting that building, moving on to the Red Wings and Pistons, are going to have some real problems on their hands if they don't fix what's going on with their situation. And really the best example, I like to point this out often, Comerica Park in 2000, very good attendance. It was like 31, 32,000 a game for the debut season at Comerica Park. It was a novelty. People were on the Ferris wheel and the merry-go-round, and the kids loved it. It was a carnival atmosphere, new park. Everyone wanted to check it out. By year two, it dropped 20%. By 2003, it had dropped 50%, and that place was a graveyard when that team stunk. And the bottom line is people are always going to love a shiny new stadium. They're going to love it for a year, maybe two. But eventually you got to win. I mean, you're a fan of these teams. You're a fan. You're an analyst. I know you're excited for the new arena, too. We've spoken about it. But, I mean, if you're the Pistons and the Red Wings, you got to be a little bit concerned about where this thing is going. If this place is empty in year two, how embarrassing is that? I mean, do you think they're even worried about this? It's a good point because if you – just look at it from the standpoint of, hey, we can take a deep breath. We bought ourselves some time. You had the final year of the Joe, the tribute, people coming out for that. You're going to have this first year Little Caesars Arena. Red Wings fans are going to come out and take a look at that. For the Pistons, could you imagine if they didn't decide to move downtown and after the uh, tremendous disappointment of a year ago where expectations were modestly high? I don't think they were unreasonable. My expectation for the Pistons last year was to get into a home court advantage seed, a top four seed in the East, maybe a first round series win in the playoffs. And I would have been fine with that. I would have been very satisfied with that progress. Instead, they take an enormous step backward. They got tremendous uh, questions of character and leadership on this roster. They made some moves, but I don't think it's enough in this off season. When you look at everything in the landscape and how it's painted, if they went back to the palace, that place would be half full. People would be bailing on this team. So it was the right move for Gores to move downtown, but you're right. They've got to move quickly into a competitive level, either one of them, both of them. You know, I think this is a make-or-break year for Stan Van Gundy in a lot of ways. You've got to see chartable progress, and if you don't, maybe you think about moving in a different direction, and maybe you reconsider the notion of ever giving double duties to the same person, be it head coach and general manager duties, because Stan just hasn't been able to get the traction sustained. On the other hand, You've got uh, Ken Holland in this pay-to-pay with Andreas Athanasiu and his agent. He might go to the KHL. This is a simple contract. This is a simple deal that should have been done, that should have been easy to do, but for the parameters and restrictions of the salary cap that are nobody's fault but Ken Holland's own. And so now you're having to maybe cut bait on a guy that you absolutely want as part of your building core, but instead you're overextended to so many bad contracts I don't know where the Red Wings go from here. And in Ken Holland's final year of his deal, I don't know how he's able to sing for his supper and re-up with Chris Illich, but my fear is that that Chris is a bottom-line guy about dollars and cents, and as long as that's adding up, he's not going to make too many changes with the Red Wings and the Tigers, and that could be death for either franchise. The Athanasiu thing is so depressing. I mean, on a number of levels. He's young, he's flashy, really on these teams that are inept and struggle or outside of the playoff picture Typically what you have to look forward to is individual players that may interest you. And there's no one more interesting on this team than Athanasiu. And the fact that this has been so bungled, it's so upsetting on so many levels. I want to get your quick opinion on the Pistons. You hit on it a little bit, but where do you see their end game? I mean, the dust has settled. 
They have Avery Bradley in tow. They add Luke Kennard and basically, you know, a bunch of crap, a couple irrelevant pieces that are going to be at the end of their bench. I mean, where are they going and what is the blueprint? We talked about this a little bit in studio. You said at the time that you wanted a little more time to see the offseason flush out. It has flushed out. We know what they're going in the battle with at this point. Do they really think that they can win a title with a core of Andre Drummond, Reggie Jackson, and Avery Bradley? I mean, Stan Van Gundy's a smart guy. He can't possibly believe this will work, right? Well, he's hoping. I mean, this is his one last best shot, I think, to convince Tom Gores that at least uh, he's got the right model. He's got the right analytics staff in place, which we know to be extensive, that he's got uh, the right drafting and development in place, and that there are guys that you can count on to be appreciably better year after year. And, and Kennard's maybe a central example of that. They had to cut bait on Caldwell Pope. I'm glad they did. He is not worth the money. How do I know that? No other team was willing to give him a multi-year extension for the money that he wanted. He got a one-year deal with the Lakers in the Bradley direction, and that kicks the can down the road. And I do like Bradley a lot. I think the chances of him signing as a free agent with Detroit are pretty minimal. The thing about Andre Drummond, though, is each year that you get into this contract, which is bad, which is an albatross, which he's not really living up to, he's had the nasal surgery, whatever, You and I don't want to hear about that. We don't want to hear another word about virtual reality goggles. It's crap. He either comes to the table ready to serve or he's not this year. You get through this year's contract with Drummond, Justin. Now you've got two years left on the deal that by the then, by the NBA salary cap standards, might not look as prohibitive in terms of moving it. A player option for 2020 and 2021. So, I think he gets more tradable as time goes on. But then again, that's offset by the fact, like you're saying, that if he doesn't develop, if he doesn't advance, if he doesn't improve, if he doesn't become at least a somewhat competent free throw shooter, if he doesn't demonstrate some kind of alpha male leadership on the floor, which there's no reason to believe that it'll just suddenly happen, I think the Pistons are stuck with him. And if that's the case, that's your nucleus. And that's a terrifying concept. If, If I'm in Stan Van Gundy's shoes, that scares me to death. And we know, though, that Tom Gores, for his part, wanted to do that deal with Drummond. So I'm not sure if Stan in that room uh, voiced any objections to Tom saying, hey, maybe we want to think this over. But he's locked and he's uh, basically handcuffed to Drummond at this point. And that's one of the last uh, kind of so-called star players in the NBA I want to be handcuffed to right now. I, I am so down on that franchise as a whole. And I talked on the show a few weeks ago. I see them as a great risk for that illusion of success, and we talked about it a little bit when you were in studio as well. I see them having a a good year, an improved year, maybe even in the 50-win range, and everyone that's on the Pistons bandwagon is going to come out and point at people like you and me and say, I told you so, and, and this team is going in the right direction, and it's going to create this false sense of security with the direction. Are there, they're going to be no closer to a title winning 50 games this year than they would be if they won 35. At the end of the day, this core is is not good enough to get it done. They're nowhere near good enough to get it done. It wasn't like the 2003 Pistons that were close one piece away, but you know they were at least close. We could acknowledge that they were close. This team isn't the 2003 Pistons one player away from, from title contention. They're not that. I mean, they are light years away, and th- there's no hero with the cape coming through that door to rescue them. This team should just bottom out, 
Sam Hinkie, the process. I want it. I can tune them out exactly the way I'm tuning out the Tigers and say, you know what, I'm going to go into a coma for five years, and I'm going to come back and when Bo Burrows and, and Matt Manning and all these young guys are coming up, and then I can pay attention again. But I, I want to finish on this point. We talked about it a little bit on your show, I believe, last week, and I, I, I threw it to you. I'm going to throw it to you again now that you've had some time to sleep on it. Uh, who in this town is winning the next playoff round or the next playoff series? I mean, it, I don't see any of them as a good bet. I'm going with the Pistons begrudgingly. Who do you see in this town of the four major teams having the first triumph in the postseason? I'm going to be with you on the Pistons. I think it's a toss-up between them and, uh, scary thought enough, the Red Wings, just because of the, uh, the cyclical nature of the NHL and the fact that an eight seed can rise up and beat a one, and that's not that big of a surprise. And, and maybe you get on a run. But I am just not convinced, as you are not, that the Red Wings have anything remotely resembling a playoff roster right now. And the fact of even getting in is a question. Now you're talking about winning four games in a series. You're talking about winning four games with that blue line core of defensemen that's an absolute atrocity. And I've been I've – been, I'll say this for myself. I don't like to to my own horn, but I've been ringing that bell for a long time now about you got to address the back end. They do not have two guys. Ideally, it would have been Cronwall and Erickson. Those are your top two defensemen. Just those aren't even two middle pair defensemen at this point. I didn't even think Erickson is top six. Cronwall on a good night if he's healthy, which is rare. Maybe he's a four or a five, but that's where you're at. The Kaiser's not a top end. They don't have one. And they never traded for one. They haven't been able to draft or develop one. They had a shot at one with a, a player a year ago, and Chalowski is just too far away. So, you know, that, that's a, an enigma unto itself. Then you got the Antanasiu question. You don't have a lot of scores. You turn to the Pistons, and as much as we've downplayed them, and believe me, this doesn't translate to optimism. This is just the least bad option. I think they can pull it together. I think they are better than they were a year ago. I think they're closer to what they were two years ago. And for whatever reason, the Reggie Jackson injury, Andre Drummond in a funk, those two get along really well. Maybe they start clicking. you got Avery Bradley in there. He's a better defender. I think he's an upgrade from KCP. I really do. Then maybe they slide in in a weak Eastern Conference into some kind of 4-5-6 seed scenario, and they're able to win a playoff round. So I go Pistons, but I don't feel good about it. You know, that new scoreboard is very pretty at that arena. That's all I can say. I mean, it, it, <laughs> that new scoreboard is going to give us a lot of bad news for the next couple of years for both those teams. It won't be the, the, the bearer of good news, but it is very beautiful. That's what it, you got to give it to them. That's the one point. Well, you got that. Yeah, they got a nice concourse. Do you hear there's like 45 bathrooms at this place? This is the kind of stuff we have to talk about, Ryan. No it's, troughs. Yep. There are no troughs. No troughs. That's right. They got rid of the troughs. That's like oh. a Detroit Red Wings tradition. No more splashback. Exactly. <laughs> this is this is the kind of crap that we have to look forward to. I'm looking forward to uh, answering the question of whether or not the Little Caesars Pizza in the arena will be as good as it was at Joe Louis Arena. That's what I'm. That's like I'm going to the, the opener for the Red Wings on October 5th. I'm just curious about how the food's going to taste. I'm not even thinking about the product. I mean, oh, no, I'm, I'm going to be sampling everything there, and I'm going to come out 10 pounds heavier. That's what they've reduced us. Are you going to get to hang out in that little VIP area where the players walk by you on their way into the uh, locker room? I, see, the I didn't even. I didn't even know that was a thing. See, I'm learning already more about this arena. But that's what I'm talking about, Jack. This this whole stadium, they have two teams and no hopes. 
They have. Uh, it, they have There's going to be some great concerts, though, Justin. The con- I'm seeing Paul McCartney. I'm looking forward to that. Paul McCartney's going to be the best show in that arena for the next five years. I'm really curious, as coming from the music background on this, because typically the sound in basketball hockey arenas are not good. I, I saw Adele at the Palace last year, and despite her voice, the acoustics were not great. When I lived in New Orleans, I saw a couple concerts at the famously named Smoothie King Center, and the acoustics were not great. So I'm curious to see how it sounds uh, at uh, the Big Pizza Slice downtown. And we could do an hour show about this arena, and that it would be more interesting than breaking down the Red Wings prospects in the next couple of years because it's depressing. But anyway, Ryan, thank you for joining us. Ryan Schuling, host of the Schuling Report, Team 92.1 FM in Lansing. Always a pleasure, Ryan. Hope to have you back soon. Justin, you got it anytime, man. So now we welcome in Justin Rogers, Detroit Lions beat writer for the Detroit News. It is his second appearance on the show. I'm not going to go into all the reasons I think Justin Rogers is one of the best in town because we talked about it last time and I talk about it almost every other episode. Justin Rogers, welcome back to the program. So now that I'm officially a regular, do I get like a mug or something? I, You know, I, I got mugs. I got a Spiro Avenue mug for you if you want. I got pens. I got post-it notes. You got to come in studio. I, I'm trying to get you, but you live like seven and a half hours away, so I don't know what I'm supposed to do. I know. You know, and it's funny. I, I My day was, was moving pretty swiftly today, and I thought about reaching out and seeing if we could make it happen, and I, I quickly mapped it out, and I was like, man... That's another hour to drive to his studio. I don't want to be on the road three and a half hours today. So that that was my deciding factor is you weren't worth another hour in my day. Well, I'm you know sorry. what? I don't, I don't blame you. And if I were you, I would not drive an hour to see me either. I mean, I, I have to hang out with myself because I'm attached. But uh, if I had a choice, I wouldn't. But I, I want to get into this. This is a big week for you. You've probably done 100 interviews, so you know what we're here to talk about. I want to talk about the Lions. They're starting their season in a couple days. First, I'm going to talk big picture and not such a, on a micro level. Look, Justin, I'm a fan of Bob Quinn and what he's done overall. But at the end of the day, Jim Caldwell is still here. And this has been a consensus opinion throughout the league outside of this state that he's one of the worst coaches in the NFL. USA Today ranked him dead last in a, in a 2015 article. And frankly, to me, that sounded about right. I mean, do you see any way that Jim Caldwell can lead this team to great heights, great heights not being one and done in the playoffs? Yeah, you know, I, I think I'd take, um, not exception, but, you know, I don't, I don't agree with the take that he's the worst coach in the NFL. I, you know, I look at a guy and I, I, I see average. Um, you know, there's, there's some things he does really well. You know, I think he's an exceptional manager of people. I think he obviously does a nice job stockpiling his staff and, and putting good football people around him. Uh, and, and then I see things that he doesn't do as well as maybe some other coaches in terms of uh, in-game strategies and adjustments and clock management. But, um, you know, he, he took a roster that in, in many ways was below average last season and, you know, took that to the playoffs. No pro bowlers. Um, you know, you had some talent in, in Matthew Stafford and Darius Slays and uh, Glover Quinns of the world, but, you know, you're missing your best pass rusher last year. You're starting a rookie left tackle. And, and to get a team like that into the playoffs and to do it two out of three years, you know, doesn't say, scream worst coach in the NFL to me. But when I look at it, I wonder, is, is he capable once he does have all the pieces necessary? And Bob Quinn has not given them all the pieces yet, but he's, he's given them some more. But is, is Jim Caldwell the guy that can get them over the top? Could, could he get them to the, uh, the Super Bowl and and to win a Super Bowl if if he had the pieces and you know I I'm, I'm not convinced that that's the case um, 
you know, I, I certainly could be proven wrong. I know he got to the Super Bowl with, um, you know, Peyton Manning and uh, fell short there. Uh, he obviously got the best out of Joe Flacco as an offensive coordinator in one of the most incredible runs in postseason history that year from a quarterback, and, and they did win that one. Um, but uh, as the head man in Detroit where the task is already taller than it is seemingly in, in every other NFL city, you know, I, I'm not convinced he's the guy. Uh, you know, a lot, lot needs to still be proven until I am convinced. You know, I, I agree with your general point about, you know, the distinction. I, I, I agree that Jim Caldwell is a great players coach, and everyone has said it that's ever played for him. He keeps guys fresh. He doesn't have this grueling overkill schedule. He respects everybody in the locker room. They respect him, and that's all to his credit, and I think that's part of his success to whatever extent he's had some. As a tactician, and you've alluded to it as well, I think he is bottom of the barrel. I don't think it gets a lot lower in terms of an in-game coach, and I certainly don't see him marching into a stadium and out-coaching Bill Belichick on the grand stage. I just, I, And if you don't have a coach that you think has any chance on the big stage, I don't know why he's here. And that goes to my next question. It's one of the most, I would say, famous fan conspiracy theories in this town where people are convinced, and I'm not so sure, I'm not one of them, that the only reason Jim Caldwell is still here and Bob Quinn hasn't fired him is because Jim Caldwell is a favorite of Martha Ford. She's on record as saying she's a big fan of his. Do you buy this? I mean, do you think that Bob Quinn had autonomy to make the decision to retain Jim Caldwell? I, I do uh, fully, in fact. You know, I, when when those uh, you know initial accusations came out, I you know spent some time digging a lot of off-the-record stuff and, and talked to a lot of people. And I, I came away pretty thoroughly convinced that, that Quinn made the decision he wanted to make. Um, certainly, Martha told him her preference. You know, the Ford family did acknowledge that they liked what Caldwell brought to the table. But at the end of the day, it was Quinn's decision fully. And listen, your your chances in this league to, to succeed – the windows are too short to, to make a mistake that's not just one year, but now running on two years. You know, he, there's, there's no way in my mind this rookie general manager with little guarantee that he's got a job for beyond five years is going to waste his start on a coach he doesn't believe in. You know, uh, they, they obviously didn't know each other very well. Quinn researched him thoroughly, talked to a lot of his sources, including a lot of people in the Patriots and Bill Belichick about their opinions and impressions of Caldwell. Um, and, you know, the, the relationships actually worked very well. Uh, as I mentioned, Caldwell is an exceptional manager of people. He's a wonderful communicator. And I think that's really helped with Quinn as a rookie general manager and kind of navigating some of those initial humps, the, the communications that they have with each other on a day-to-day basis. But, you know, I, as I alluded to earlier, you know, uh, we're kind of reaching the, the end of the leash with, with Caldwell in terms of, you know, whether he could get the organization another step further. So he's, he's in the final years of contract. As far as we know, there's no extension. You know, I, I think if there was, I, I do believe the team would make an announcement there. So Quinn's letting them play out that last year. They're going to see where they're at. And, and then he's going to make the decision on whether to retain them. And if the Lions fall short of, you know, whatever the benchmarks are this season with a healthy team, whether that's returning to the playoffs, I, I don't think that should alone be enough. I think you have to... Uh, be able to show you can get beyond that first round or at least be highly competitive against a superior team, then, you know, I, I think you have to look toward toward making a move to a, a different direction. 
Justin, if I could jump in here, I wanted to ask you just answered. I was about to ask you. I I come to this as a Patriots fan. You mentioned the Patriots. You know, there's speculation that after this year, maybe Quinn looks back to New England, tries to bring in a Josh McDaniels or a Matt Patricia. Is that what do you feel that Caldwell has to do to get signed for beyond this year? Is it make the second round of the playoffs? Is there a clear benchmark, or is there something that he has to clearly establish to get that trust with Quinn to be extended? No, I don't think there is a clear benchmark because if Matthew Stafford goes out and gets uh, a broken leg in the second game of the season, your standard is, is shifted mm-hmm. um, immediately. But, you know, uh, barring any catastrophic injuries to key players, you know, I, I really think that, that the logical um, step is, like I said, being competitive in that first round. And, and I'm not talking about getting there and, and getting whooped 26-6 by the Seahawks. But you know, you go out in that that first round and you uh, you take it to a, a, a superior opponent, whether it's Seahawks or, or Dallas or whoever on the road, or you know, better yet, I, I think they really you know a, a home game, a division win, and, and a playoff win would almost assure the Caldwell comes back. I, I couldn't imagine a situation where he wouldn't in that in those circumstances. I want to talk a little bit, Justin, about Matthew Stafford and really the contract paid to him. It set an NFL record, and frankly, it was very polarizing amongst Lions fans. I, I, Frank, I think the team had to do it. I, I don't know what other choice they had. If you wanted to move on from Stafford, it's kind of like, you know, good luck with the Brandon Whedons of the world, the Brock Osweilers. I mean, where do you stand on this? They had to, they had to pay up, right? Yeah, I, I think you've nailed it. And listen, my opinion of, of Matthew Stafford has shifted over the last two years. You know, if you, you talk to me at this time in 2015, you know, I, I would have told you that most fans overvalued what Stafford was at the time. You know, I thought he was inconsistent. I thought he was inaccurate. I thought he made too many bad decisions. I thought he cost him as many games as he won them. But in the last two years, and, and I know people are pointing to this benching as a turnaround point, I, I think we're probably far more likely to, to pin it on Jim Bob Cooter's uh, addition to our, our, our move up to the coordinator spot. Um Stafford, for the, the duration that Cooter's been here, has been putting up numbers that are on par with the game's elite quarterbacks. You know, I don't want to throw Stafford in an elite conversation because I, I think that entails wins, whether that's the quarterback directly related to the quarterback or not. You know, it still matters. Team stuff matters. But in terms of completion percentage, close to 67%. His touchdown to interception ratio during that stretch is about 4-1. to one. You know, you're talking about elite numbers that only a handful of quarterbacks can can um, say they've accomplished. So, uh, you know, you're right. You don't want to fall back into that that situation that Cleveland's going through right now, that Buffalo's going through right now, that Houston's going through right now. If Matthew Stafford was a free agent, all three of those teams would run to sign him for the contract the Lions did. It, it's a massive contract, no doubt. It's kind of a bitter pill to swallow when you haven't had team success. But if you didn't have Matthew Stafford on that roster last year, that team wins two or three games. I mean, he is a difference maker. He, you know, if, if baseball's war stat applied, you know, for for what he offers the roster versus what his replacement would, you know, it's, it's probably worth five or six wins. He he's doing everything he can. The Lions need to be better around him. They do need a running game. They do need a better defense. And you know, as long as he continues to produce at the level he has the last 27 games, uh, you know, I, I don't think he needs to do anything more beyond that. 
And you, you talk about the if there was a football wins above replacement. It's not just how many games they would lose next year or, you know, or the year after it's gone. It's, it's how much they would lose in the next 10, 15, 20 years, maybe, until they found someone that good. I mean, they were looking for someone this good for, what, like 40 years or something? I mean, it's, it's, people don't right. realize there's, these guys don't grow on trees. I thought it was, I understand what people are saying. I think it's a crazy take to say that they should have played hardball with this guy and let him walk out the door or franchise him at $31 million next year. It's just it's asinine. I think they did the right thing. The one thing with this team, I don't think anybody talks about it on a big enough level. People talk about it each year that it's something they need to improve. I've read in your articles you've mentioned it often. But this running attack, the rushing attack of the Detroit Lions, it's not just something that's been like an acute problem. I looked into this. This took me a while to research, uh, research this, Justin. They were 30th last year. That was quick to find. They were dead last in the league in rushing in 2015, also quick to find. Do you know how far back I had to go to find when this team last finished in the top half of the NFL in rushing? 1998. Uh, yeah, I was going to guess Barry. Barry Sanders last year. So in that year, they finished 10th. It wasn't like they were, you know, 5th, 6th, or 8th. I mean, 10th is fine, but you have to go back almost two decades to find the last time that this team was even middle of the pack rushing. They're every year. We looked it up. It's 27th, 30th, 28th, 29th. This has been going on for 18, 19 years. And, and there's been this narrative. There's fans out there that think that Amir Abdullah is going to be the, the, the cure to these woes. I mean, what is this organization doing with their rushing attack? And do you have any faith that Amir Abdullah is going to stay healthy? And if he does, will be the elixir to this problem. Yeah, so the, the interesting thing here was, um, you know, the first thing you look at with, with the running game is the back, you know, and, and the Lions didn't do anything there this offseason. They signed Matt Asiata, which was never meant to be anything, and they didn't draft a guy. They they brought in undrafted Teon Green, who, listen, fantastic story. Uh, kid earned his job. He's an you know, uh, exciting young player, but nobody ever thought of him and, and still doesn't think of him as a, a guy that's going to be the, the elixir here. Uh, what they did instead was they invested in, in the blocking. And that's been a big part of it. They haven't had a, a consistent tight end blocker, no matter how much they tried to sell us on Brandon, Brandon Pettigrew is that guy. He wasn't. He was never that good of a blocker. I would say average to below average, even though that was supposed to be his prime skill set in his last couple of years here. The offensive line has also never been that great. And Bob Quinn has invested more resources in the offensive line than, than anything. He spent the first, third, and fifth round pick his first year here. Then he went out and signed Wagner, who I, I think is a fabulous left tackle, or I'm sorry, right tackle, and, and even better than what I anticipated now that I've, I've seen him in person, and T.J. Lang, which, whose track record speaks for itself. So, you know, they're, they're trying to create the lanes for these backs to run through. But the, the stat that troubled me so much last year was the, the stuff percentage. And what that means is the number of carries they had that resulted in no gain or a loss of yards. And they were dead last in the league. Like 13.5% of their runs resulted in no gain or a loss. That's terrible. That means that your backs are incapable of making guys miss in the backfield. They, they can't get past that first unblocked tackler, and they just rely on perfect holes all the time. And so, yeah, I look at Amir Abdullah, and I see a guy that can make that first tackler miss. 
we we saw it a little bit in his rookie season, but that was derailed in part because of fumble problems. And then we saw in the the six quarters we got of him last year, um, where where he looked downright electric at stretches. Had a touchdown in the opener on a pass. He had a touchdown in the second game that was called back due to a hold. And he was injured on a, a twenty plus yard carry where he had an awkward plant and uh, broken his you know broke his foot. And so. You asked me, do, do I believe he can stay healthy? And and I, I can't answer that for you. What I can tell you is that before the injury last year, Amir Abdullah never missed a single game at any level, high school, college, professional, due to injury. And so, you know, he, he played in Nebraska. He played with the big boys of the Big Ten, and he was a workhorse there. And so I look at his track record and I say, all right, maybe this is a fluke. Maybe it's a fluke. I, I have to give him the benefit of the doubt. And if he is on the field, if he can stay healthy, um, you know, I, I really do believe he's capable of making the Lions run game adequate. I'm not going to say good, but could they be in the middle of the pack? Could they average that elusive four yards of carry? Could they be good enough on third down that they're they're not having to throw on every third and one because they don't have a reliable guy to, to power through the hole, then, uh, yeah, I, I do believe Amir Abdullah can be that guy. But, again, you're banking on a guy that's coming off of a serious foot injury, and you're banking on a guy that, that hasn't yet proven it on the professional level. But that's you know that's what Bob Quinn chose to do. He plugged a lot of holes this offseason. He really did. He, he made the offensive line better. He completely retooled the linebacker group. He uh, gave the secondary more reliable quality depth, but he ignored defensive end and he ignored running back. And so now we're going to see how much of that comes back to bite him in the ass. You know, I, Amir Abdullah may stay healthy for all I know. I don't know if his little to- uh, Donald Trump baby hands are going to hold on to the ball this year. I mean, the fumbling issues two years ago were an absolute nightmare. And you talk about this offensive line. I agree. They certainly addressed it. Everyone that I'm talking to is like, oh, the, the much improved Detroit Lions offensive line. Greg Robinson was traded for a song, had a nice offseason, granted, but who knows what he's going to be. Everything I read on Wagner was that he was a solid signing but was an overpay, but he's, he's not going to be a, a game-changing right tackle. And T.J. Lang was hurt half the offseason. So it's like even if these pieces go exactly according to plan, this team is going to need time to gel. I, the offensive line unit, you got three new guys on the line. I'm just skeptical. I'm not saying they're going to be bad, but I don't know if they're going to be these maulers that everyone says. I, I just, I don't, I'm not buying into it to that extent. But I want to talk a little bit about your colleague, Kyle Minky. He was told by a player to, quote, shove your article up your ass this week. <laughs> uh, did, you, did, you, did we find out who, who that player was that told Kyle that? Yeah, he didn't put it in the story? Not that I read. I saw his tweet about it. Who, did, who was it? Oh, I don't know if I'm going to get him in trouble here. Um, he, pr- he, probably, was, he probably broke the news. He said it was on the record. I, I feel like, yeah, I feel like he did. So it was, uh, it was Cornelius Washington, the defensive end that was signed this offseason. Now, what did what did Kyle say that got in Cornelius's head? I mean, what could he have possibly Nothing. said about Cornelius Washington? Kyle was Washington? the representative of the face of the media in this brief interaction. Uh, you know, Washington's kind of an intense guy in the first place, you know, and you know, I don't know if it's the coach in that room, Chris Kasurik, or, um, you know, if it's the leadership there, but you know, there's there's not a group, I think, that's more in tune with the criticism 
that their units face than the defensive line. And that's been a constant for, you know, years. I remember Jason Jones getting upset because of a tweet from, you know, former Detroit news writer Josh Katzenstein. Um, you know, we've, I think we've all just kind of butted heads at some time with the defensive line. And, and listen, I have no problem having a player tell me to shove my opinion on my ass. Who cares? You know, it's, it's my opinion, and their opinion is they're free to disagree with it. But the point that I made to Kyle after he talked to him, because I wasn't there, but, uh, you know, I kind of said I hope you conveyed this, that has anything been written about these guys that's not factual? Because here's, here's Cornelius Washington's track record. He played in a, a scheme that wasn't necessarily pass rush friendly, but he has three sacks in four seasons. You want to go back to college? The guy has never had more than six sacks in a year at the University of Georgia. There is no track record there. There's no track record for Anthony Zettel. There's no track record for these undrafted kids, Alex Barrett and Jeremiah Valawanga. Uh, you know, I, I, don't, I don't know what else to say. That That's not saying they can't do it. What it's saying is they're young and they've never done it before. And that's why everyone's saying, where's this pass rush coming from? I think I wrote a very fair pointed column after the roster was set just asking that very question where is it going to come from because we don't know we saw anthony zettel flash in the preseason i guess so we saw willie young flash in the preseason several times and it never translated to much when he was with the lions cornelius washington destroyed the combine the guy is highly athletic for his size but he's never done it successfully in the nfl he's never consistently generated a pass rush so that is the big question. And so, yeah, we've all written it, and they might not like to hear it, but their job is to shut us up. You know, their job is to, to get after the quarterback and make all those make us eat those words. But I'm not shoving anything up my ass until they prove it. And I'm going to tell Cornelius everything you just said. And what, what are you going to do then? I mean, I, I imagine – I imagine he would agree with me. Oh, okay. I, I really do. I, I don't think I don't. I don't think anything I said has been offensive. I don't think anything I've said has been untrue. I welcome his success. I'm not rooting against him, but he hasn't done it yet, and that's why we ask the question. And you and Kyle, stuff like that, you're experiencing exactly why some people in your industry shy away from these things. I mean, you don't care. Kyle seemed to roll with it. Some people would have their feelings hurt. I'm not going to name names, but uh, I'm glad that you don't care. So I just I'm going to wrap with you. You know, I know you've had a long day and you're driving all over the state of Michigan. So I just put it in stone. Where does this Detroit Lions team finish? What, what's their record? Do they win that playoff game? Like if you had the bet, what do you say? I I do not see this team making the playoffs. Therefore, I don't see them winning a playoff game. You know, I I am a, a large believer that the middle class of the NFL is very large. And when I say very large, about 25 of the 32 teams are the middle class. You know, there's a couple teams on the bottom that are outliers or a couple teams on the top that are outliers. And everybody else is, is scrapping for the, the, the one-score wins that make up half of the games in this league. Listen, how many of those games the Lions won last year could have gone against them? Uh, at know? least eight or nine. <laughs> I mean, they had all those yeah, comebacks so, late. and. Listen, they're starting the season healthier. They have a little bit more promise in terms of talent. But, you know, you need the bounces to go your way. I, you know, I, I legitimately believe they're in that middle class, which to me means they're going to finish between 6 and 10 and 10 and 6. So, you know, everybody picking eight wins. Vegas setting at eight, seven and a half. You know, there's a reason for that. That's, that's just the team that they are. I think I had them 9 and 7 in my game-by-game predictions. But, 
I would say at least six of those were coin flips. So we'll we'll see how it goes. But uh, I, I wouldn't I would never guarantee a playoff spot for this team. Let's just go with that. Yeah, I'm Possible, with you. Not likely. I'm with you, Justin. And I know it's fun to have the whole the Lions will win 13 games take or the Lions are going to go two and 14 take. I just don't think it's realistic. I think they're going to finish eight and eight, like you said, nine and seven, somewhere in that ballpark. We'll find out. I guess the first game it is in a couple days here hosting Arizona. I think that is one of the coin flip games that you mentioned. So we'll see. Justin Rogers, thank you for joining us. Uh, always a pleasure, and hope to have you again maybe sometime mid season. Yeah, maybe we can do a bye week in the studio. I was thinking that today. Oh, you got to you got to come in the studio. I'm tired of asking. You, you're making me feel like one of these crazy ex girlfriends that gets dumped, and I, I'm hounding you all the time. Yeah, get that leprosy cured up, and we'll get in there. Uh, I'm gonna work on it. You you have once again shot my self esteem to pieces. So thank you for that. So that was. I have no idea what you look like. That's the best part. <laughs> Well, I don't have my, my giant mug as my Twitter profile picture like you do, but I do not hide my image. I am readily available, and you can look on my website, SpiroAvenue.com, for a wonderful picture of me and a nice little bio. You can learn all about me so you feel like I'm properly vetted before you come into my studio and in my home. Too late for that. Sounds good. All right, Justin. Thank you so much. That was Justin Rogers from the Detroit News, frequently cited as one of my favorite in-town one of the best in the business, and for the very reasons he kind of pointed out. Uh, he doesn't really care what athletes think about him. He doesn't care what his subjects think, and he's just going to give it to you exactly how he sees it. And also a good technical writer, too. So it's always a pleasure to have Justin Rogers on. And that is going to be a wrap for this episode of Spiro Avenue. We are working a little bit on our last segment, uh, tweaking our winners and losers segment with our new producer, Jag. So we are we're going to work on that little by little and have a, a whole new show really coming out in the next couple of weeks. We will continue to evolve things and uh, and hopefully it is to your listening pleasure. So, Jag, thank you so much for joining us. Your first episode. We made it through. It was great to have you. I'm all about the listening pleasure. And the listening pleasure is really your job because you got to make me sound as good as possible, and it's a tough job sometimes. I've had a lot of uh, difficult challenges in 15 years of doing this. This could be right up there. Good, good. It would be one of the worst you've ever had, I'm sure. And I, I, I need all the help I can get. God knows. So uh, thank you to Jag for being here for his first episode. Thank you to you for listening. Uh, hoping to be back uh, early next week. We have been working on Charles Rogers for a couple weeks now. It has been quite an adventure. When we finally do get that book, I will tell that whole story, and it should be a great deal of fun. This was episode 11 of the Spiro Avenue podcast. Thank you again to Jag, the producer, our guests Ryan Schuling and Justin Rogers. I am Justin Spiro, and we will see you next week. <laughs>